Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys. Happy week. I hope everyone's had a good week. And we are back with another episode here of Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. And we are going to be getting into a subject that we're going to call the race to the bottom. That's right. Uh, you might recall a previous podcast that we did. Also, those of you who are tuning in on YouTube, thanks for uh, rejoining us. So you may be seeing this in video form or uh, obviously over on the podcast, uh, various services. Um, so wherever you're coming from, welcome back. Welcome. In a previous podcast, we talked about um, sort of the buy once, cry once mentality of uh, getting into a really good quality item uh, right out the gate and uh, and kind of just uh, you know getting into something good. Uh, this is going to be a little bit slightly different type of subject. Uh, before we get into the race to the bottom and what uh, that entails, uh, I would like to give a quick shout out to uh, the sponsors of today's podcast, WeTheProcessor.com. Uh, they are a staunchly pro-freedom and pro-2A friendly car, uh, credit card processor. Okay, No monthly fees, uh, really low rates. You don't have to worry about being terminated by your current processor um, for what you sell or anything like that. Uh, you can sell what you want, when you want, to who you want to. Uh, really good group of people, uh, pro-2A. So if you're looking at credit card processing, maybe you're a business, a large business perhaps, maybe even a gun manufacturer or something like that, and you're looking for a credit card processor that's not going to send you up the creek, uh, wetheprocessor.com, check them out. Really great group of people, and they support um, life, liberty, and the pursuit. That's so right. let's um, let's get down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think you, um, you kind of led into it. We have spoken in the past about you know the whole buy once, cry once, and get the like, – spend extra money to get quality gear. And this is really kind of leaning towards the opposite end of the spectrum of, well, I don't want the best gear. I want the, the, you know, most least expensive gear because it's good enough. So, um, and that entails the race to the bottom. So what you're seeing is this mass, uh, race for manufacturers to try to produce gear or items for the lowest possible price. And, I think that it's a pretty big issue um, just because a lot of the companies that are doing this are they're larger companies and they're putting their name on something. So you're starting to you're trying to buy something that has a quality uh, reputation, but you're not necessarily getting the same product. And I have a couple of examples of that. Um, so and this is nothing to do with firearms for this example. It might be something like you might see name brands like uh Nike or Under Armour or, you know, national brands, they produce separate items like garments uh, for different stores. So if you're going into, say, like a TJ Maxx or a Marshalls or one of those, uh, you know, discount stores and you're buying these products, what you don't realize is that you're buying garments that are specifically made for that that distributor. Um, you're not getting the same quality that you would find at say a normal retailer. Um, and that's why you're seeing them at those discounted prices. And that's like, it's almost like this little dirty secret within the apparel industry that 
you're they're tricking the average consumer to think that they're getting a good deal like oh this item is normally uh $70 for say a compression shirt but you're not getting the $70 quality of compression shirt you're getting the $35 specifically made garment for that lower price point I think the other paradigm to look at the race to the bottom as well, and I'm going to draw some parallels in the uh, gun industry, okay? Uh, There are a lot more new gun owners than there have been uh, in in a really long time. So we've had more NICS background checks just in the last six or seven months than we have in a considerable time that at least that that system's been implemented. Um, So there's a lot of people getting into firearms, right? So companies have to make a decision, right? Well, do we try to produce stuff cheaper so we can make more of it? Um, you know, you're always looking for a way um, to introduce materials and manufacturing processes into your overall manufacturing regimen in a way to cut cost, but not necessarily cut uh, the quality of the product. So, I mean, with the use of polymers and things and injection molding and especially 3D printing and uh, metal injection molding, like Ruger does a lot of cast products. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, they're one of the pioneers in the U.S. industry of firearms making when it comes to using that type of process, uh, using castings and mm-hmm. a lot of things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, does it make the guns cheaper to make? Yeah, it probably does. I'm sure there's some cost-cutting measures in place, but also uh, speed of processing uh, parts and the speed of manufacturing something. So, yeah, if you can make your overall processes uh, from a man- manufacturing, um, you know, perspective, more efficient, then obviously you're going to increase your profits by increasing efficiency, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a lower quality product. I'll use Ruger as another example, and this is of course a good thing, right? Is when you look at like the Ruger Americans, okay? That series of rifles is not the, the it, it's a good quality gun, but it's also a less lesser qual or lesser expense gun, right? So the entry you know, level, yeah, it's rifle. entry level rifle that you can beat up and and play with, and it's really no big deal, you know. Take it out hunting, it's banging around in the four wheeler, you know that type of stuff. A good hard use gun that you don't have to really feel too terrible about something happening to it. But the American is not going to be the same exact action and, and manufacturing setup as like a Ruger Hawkeye or an M77 Mark II all-weather or whatever type of older M77. You know, an M77 is a great gun. The American is not a bad gun, but it's also a much lower barrier of entry. Um, but they're also don't cost them as much money to make. So they can offer that at a lower price and still offer the higher quality rifle uh, for the consumer as well. So the problem with the race to the bottom is that eventually you get to the bottom. Uh, right. Yeah. So, and I'm not, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's, it's a supportive thing, right? Okay. But you look at like, Pal- uh, not Palmetto state. Um, but what I'm referring to is Anderson. All right. So yeah. Ander- Anderson manufacturing, and this is not necessarily, you know, we're not trying to throw them through the mud. It, it's a supportive thing, right? Is you look at the barrier of entry of an Anderson product, you know, it is, it is a lower that doesn't cost a ton of money, but it's still decent quality. You know, we affectionately call them the poverty ponies for a reason. Cause, but, the issue there is, again, getting to that race to the bottom thing. It's like once you lower your price to a certain level and it gets so low, it doesn't matter how qual- how good a quality your product might be. The perception is that it's not good because it doesn't cost a lot of money. And with Anderson, I think it's a little bit of an unwarranted and unfair 
type of thing to say, oh, well, just because an Anderson lower is $59, well, in this market, probably closer to 100 Normally, like a few years ago, you could buy Anderson lowers for like 35 bucks a pop. And it's at so what true. point, at what point can you go, okay, you can't make it cheaper yourself. Even if you had the machinery to do it yourself, you still can't even make it as cheap as that. And then how can they make a profit on such a low cost item? And like they've got to make it up in numbers and bulk. Like they've got to sell a lot of them. So the problem with the race to the bottom is that you get to the bottom. But you can always go down on your price. But like once you go low, you're never going to, it's not like they can raise their price. So Anderson couldn't say, all right, well, now our lowers are $189. Well, no one's going to pay $189 when they know that they used to sell for yeah. $39. So it, it, it's just a different kind of model, I suppose, right? And I'm not, and look, I'm not saying that they're not great lowers. We build a ton of guns using Anderson lowers, and I've had really good success with them. Uh, the only thing that I've ran into in terms of issues is sometimes the grip screw uh, hole that's drilled and tapped through the receiver on a uh, on an AR-15 on the Andersons. Sometimes they don't always drill all the way through, and I've had to take a tap and actually drill through and open those up a little bit to accommodate some of the longer grip screws. And every now and then, I'll have to, the anodizing might be a little bit thick on some of the pinholes and some of the, uh, you know, recesses for the plungers and screw or uh, springs and things like that. I've had to go in and just barely chase them with a little bit of abrasive wrapped around a tiny drill bit just to break up the anodizing to get some of the, uh, the pins to clear. But it's a barrier of entry that's very affordable. And if you just want to build a, a pistol or rifle, um, using that type of a lower that you don't have to have a ton of money wrapped up in, or if you want to stock a bunch of them, have them on hand for future builds, um, they do fulfill a specific uh, niche type of thing in the market, and they do it quite well and for an affordable price. But again, it's one of those examples of the race to the bottom. Uh, and it's unfair to say that Anderson is a bottom to your product. It, it's not. It's It's actually a really good product, and it fulfills a specific type of goal and niche within the industry, but um, you're never going to, you know, be able to charge more once you go to that low point and you're known as the value leader. That's all you're ever going to be known as is the value leader. That's why you don't see a value-minded Daniel Defense product, right, or right. a Geisley product. You're, you're never going to see a Geisley product be a low-tier entry-level type of thing. Like he's known for his good quality components, the same type of thing. Yeah. Traditionally, what will end up happening is if a company does decide that they want to go that route, they will create a secondary brand that really specializes in that lower tier or entry level uh, venture. So, I mean, even if you look at, uh, and I talk about stuff that, you know, like apparel, garments, cars, because that's mm -hmm. kind of like the easiest way to use it as an analogy, because everybody really understands it and gets it. Yeah. So, you know, something like, uh, like polo, like everybody knows the polo shirt, the infamous polo shirt, they kind of really made it what it is. Yeah. Well, at that time, maybe a polo shirt was too expensive, So, but they're not going to lower their price point on it. They're going to create a secondary brand, which was Chaps. So everybody knows Chaps, Ralph Lauren. So instead of creating, a, a, trying to take a, reduce the price of that original polo shirt, they just, you know, hey, we're going to create a secondary brand. We're going to put it at a lower price point. 
maybe we'll cut costs, we'll reduce some of the quality or do some of the material, use different materials. But that's how a traditional company will do it. Uh, in the firearms industry, um, I haven't seen that too often with creating a secondary brand just because I guess there's already so much saturation uh, and everybody's already fighting for the business. But you see it with cars. Every single car company has the luxury brand and the regular brand. So Toyota and Lexus, um, Cadillac, and what is it? Uh, what's the opposite of Cadillac? It's another American brand. One of them. Who knows? Um, yeah, Volkswagen is the standard version of Mercedes. And even the Italian cars now, like a Ferrari, all of them are owned by regular car company. That's the luxury branch of that. Um, so when you start getting into how to reduce those costs, you have two different ways. You know, you have something that might reduce the cost by materials. Uh, that's not the way that I think should uh, companies should go because then you start to lower the integrity of the weapon. So, or the, the or part, any product or any product, but in Anderson's point uh, in particular, you can't associate Anderson with being an inferior product, but they are the value leader as far as lowers go. They kind of set the standard of, you know, that barrier to entry of like, I want to build an AR yeah. and you don't want to spend a, a lot of money. Use an Anderson lower. And to be to be fair as well on the Andersons is they do use that um, R85 coating, which is a really, really gnarly coating that does quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, it has really good lubricity and things like that. So if you've never gotten into that or you don't understand what it's about, read up on it. It's pretty interesting uh, that they do offer some uh, cool coatings yep. uh, on some of their products. And, and lowers aren't all they make. I mean, they do complete, you know, guns as right. well. So um, it's just worth mentioning. So... Real, um, real yeah, quick, go ahead. though, um, I just wanted to mention on that note, um, the other way to reduce those costs other than reducing material costs is processes. So a lot of companies will streamline the process in the, uh, so that way they're able to produce more of a product without reducing the quality of the of whatever it is that they're making. So uh, a really, really good example of that is Toyota. They introduced way when they first came in to the market, uh, they have a, this is called Kaizen. It's a Japanese term uh, for, um, for increasing the productivity or increasing the, the way that you do something. And that's like, it's a mentality. And that's what Toyota really brought to America, when they started producing vehicles here, they weren't able. Like, think about it: you're a new company, and you come into the to the U.S. market, and you're importing all of your vehicles. How can you compete with vehicles or products that are made here in the U.S.? You have to increase and you have to improve the process in which you do it. So you slowly start producing stuff here in the U.S., opening factories but increasing the way in which you do it. And they became really famous for doing that, so much so that other companies would contract them out to come into their uh, organization and do this kind of Kaizen overhaul, yeah. where they come in and they say, all right, well, where can we improve? And a really good example of that is uh, there was a, a homeless uh, food bank slash like food service for like homeless people and they were only able to like get out a certain amount of trays per day for homeless people and like they 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 had toyota or no i'm sorry toyota donated their time they wanted to donate money but they instead donated their time to improve the process in which they can get as much food out to these homeless people as they possibly could 
and like no and using that same type and of using efficiency the, using the same increasing efficiency and they no joke like tripled the output of the amount of uh people they're able to service yeah and it's like kind of their their call to fame of like what they're able to do just by improving processes and reducing costs based on that so no one's ever going to bat an eye at a toyota and say that's a cheap car they are known for being inexpensive but they are in no way cheap yeah i I think that there's definitely something to be said about that you know it's one thing to you know, increase your profits by way of increasing efficiency and not by lowering the quality of the product in terms of materials used or the time and care uh, taken into, you know, fitting apart or something like that. Uh, I know it it commonly gets thrown around as a, as a joke here in Georgia, but like people say, oh, well, if Chick-fil-A ran everything, it'd be like uber, uber yeah. efficient. And they're right. I mean, Chick-fil-A was one of the first fast food chains to really streamline uh, the process of ordering food and going through a checkout and everything like that and and just having everything in a very, very efficient manner to get the food out in absolute quickest time to it's the customer. It's so true. It, it is, the weights are much shorter. But anyway, that's a tiny microcosm. But that's an example of how people can actually give a crap about what they're doing and have a process that is extremely uh, streamlined, right? So you look at um, manufacturers like... Um, POF, for instance, okay, mm-hmm. Patriot Ordnance Factory, um, you know, and unfortunately, Frank's no longer with us. Yeah, yeah that happened uh, not recently, but I think within the last year yeah, or so. Yeah, poor Frank, you know, uh, is no longer with us. But what Frank started was extremely important, right? And you look at POF's manufacturing process, every single part that they produce has a serial number, it has a, a, a trackable batch process that they can go back to, you know, which operator, you know, indicated stuff. I mean, it, it's a super, super controlled process, and every single part uh, has a serial number. And it's, it's weird, you know, you look at a carrier and it'll have a number assigned to it. So if a customer has a failure in a part, whether it's a simple uh, carrier or bolt or, or, you know, something that many other firearms manufacturers would consider to be a superficial type of thing, I'll just replace it. They can actually go, okay, well, why did it fail? And they can refer back to that serial number range and go, okay, this is a material. Here's the supplier we bought it from. Here's the process we use for the heat treating on this batch or the contractor that we, uh, you know, contracted out for whatever process. And I'm not, I'm telling uh, tales out of school here. I'm not saying I know every single process that POFs goes through, but that they can go back and be able to say, all right, this part we know why it failed. So it allows them to maintain a really high quality in the product. And that's a level of attention that not many firearms manufacturers actually, um, you know, take into account. You look at a manufacturer like Daniel Defense, and those guys are very, very, very professional and very streamlined. And everything that they do has the utmost level of care. And um, their facility is extremely nice. Their employees are very well-trained. And they are one of the few manufacturers here in the United States that is actually making everything, okay? Like they are hammer forging their own barrels. They're making their own bolts and carriers. Uh, they're making their own uppers and lowers, obviously. They have a Cerakote machine in their factory. So 
the less things that you can have moving around, whether it's across the country or over to some supplier or a third-party service provider, like say, you know, having to send a part out and get it seracoded or coded or, or machined, right? That's extra downtime, right? That's more lead time. But if you go over to the, you know, Cerakote robot, <laughs> yeah, and you know it's a you, you've got a robot that is actually doing the Cerakote work. So it's much more efficient to have all of those processes in house. So when you look at a facility like what Daniel Defense has, you go, okay, well, this is you know definitely not a low tier product. Like it's an expensive rifle. Like if you buy a Mark eighteen, mm-hmm. it's a great gun. But you know the reason you're paying that money is because of the hammer forge barrels, the coatings they use. I mean. Everything is just great quality, and uh, and they're really proud of their guns, and they should be. And that's an example where you'll never see a race to the bottom with someone like Daniel Defense because they're not necessarily trying to cater um, to an entry-level type of product. They don't make entry-level products, just like Geisley doesn't make entry-level products. BCM uh, doesn't make entry-level products, right? LMT doesn't make entry-level products. So there is a niche. There is a home for the individuals and manufacturers out there that are going to be putting together something that's a little bit more budget-friendly, a little bit more entry-level. One great example of that is Palmetto State Armory, and those guys, we owe them a credit, really, for doing a great job of making the AR-15, the AK-47, you know, all of their SKUs they've been putting out, stuff they manufacture, and making those SKUs affordable and available to a wider variety of different Americans out there of all different budget types. See, that's important. When you make something approachable, you make it common. And when you make it common, it's harder for these bureaucrats in Washington to ban it. Right. When more people own them, it's that the harder it is. It's like growing a little a little miniature uh, army in a way, right? Maybe not in the purest uh, stretch of the imagination, but you're growing influence by way of more people going. You know what? This. Uh, <laughs> This rifle's awesome, and I like it, and uh, and making it more commonplace in society, more common use, as they say. I, I agree, and they they are probably the the innovators of that. That was their goal, and they stated that as their goal. Um, you know, from the beginning, they they make a variable well, PSA makes a quality rifle. Uh, it's not a race to the bottom with them, and I say that just because if you take. Uh, a PSA, you know, AR-15 style rifle, and you take it next to like some, like, you know, just brand X that you find in, on the gun gun sh- uh, gun store shelf, and you hold them and you just shake them next to each other, world of difference. One, you know, rattles and shakes and the stock's loose and the, the upper and lower receiver aren't really matched together. They're not, they're, it's just a janky rifle. And then you, you know, shake it next to like, say a PSA, it's going to fit and it has a better fit, has a better finish. It's going to feel better. So I don't consider them part of that race to the bottom. They're more or less setting the standard of where it should be. Yes, absolutely. So that's a very, very astute observation is that what PSA essentially does, they set the standard for what the affordable level yes. uh, firearm should be. And by doing so, it makes all of their competitors have to make something a little better thing is you look at the um the psa 47 it's their uh, direct gas impingement um ak mag fed 762 by 39 ar and they are fantastic uh, i shot some of the real early examples of them and it worked quite well 
And then I got one a little bit later on, and this was actually several years after I put out the first video, and we sort of revisited it with one of the newer produced ones. And, you know, they hold up really, really well. Um, they work great. And um, I know there has been some people that have had a few issues out of like an Anderson product or a PSA product, but very few and far between. Like the um, AKV, um, which is their 9mm um, AK variant that uses the Scorpion mags, you know, it made a real splash when it first came out. And yeah, there were some growing pains uh, that were um, figured out on the uh, original AKV. Mm -hmm. And guys like Tim Harmson over at Military Arms Channel did a great job of sort of saying, hey, we need this bracket in here, you know. But PSA was the kind of company being as they are. Of course, they were like, hey, we're going to fix this. We're going to call it the Mac bracket. Hey, guess what? We fixed it. And that's cool. You're going to have little teething issues. But a company like them, they're setting the standard in, in, a, in a very uh, important way. Uh, for what a great gun can be for not a ton of money. And, of course, there's always going to be the people out there that are like, well, it's not an H&K. Right. So uh, it's a piece the, of crap. The pores. It's for yeah. the pores. Yeah. Yo, the, the, the <laughs> pores can buy that crap, and I'll buy my SIG or my or my H&K. And look, I love them. I mean, dude, yeah, great H&Ks are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no no one's arguing that. No one's <laughs> arguing that a CMMG is not a great entry-level gun that's a higher-tier entry-level gun these days. Mm -hmm. No one's saying that a Geisley or Daniel Defense or an H&K, I mean, heck yeah, if you can afford it, more power to you. But you'll never see like an entry-level gun from a guy like them. And I think it's weird, too, that you notice that Colt initially got on that, I think, that 69... 20 LEs or whatever that model number is they came out with. It was like a, a good sort of entry-level AR from Colt. Yeah. So they were they went dangerously uh, dipping their toes in that water of making an entry-level AR. Yeah, and I, a lot of the issues that we see when it comes to the race to the bottom, it's consumer-driven. You know, everybody wants the best quality for the lowest price, and then what you start seeing is companies starting to lower the price, but that's not free. Like there has to come from somewhere. Um, and in this market, the way that everything is going so fast, they're not improving the process. I can tell you that they're removing material. They're milling it out. Things are getting lowered quality wise. And it shows um, personally, I've never, I've, you, if you go on the internet, you read all these stories about Anderson lowers having issues. I've never ever seen one and i've never known anybody personally to have an issue with an anderson lower outside of like say something small but nothing like a mechanical failure or th these w crazy stories you read on the internet um but a lot of it is consumer driven it is because something will start being made here in the u.s and then to in order to compete it gets sent overseas so then yeah. a, a product that was originally made here in the u.s um, gets sent overseas and comes back. The QA process gets messed up. The QC process isn't good. And then they start shipping them out and then you run into issues and you have customer complaints. And then it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy of issues. It is. It's a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. and, and a really good example, We are gonna, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but there's. It's, this is also true in the gun industry. I'll, I'll make a, a gun-related example and then I'm going to shift gears to another industry. But yeah. um, like, all right, you got to think. When you've got a company that's been in business forever, right? Look at Colt. Look how long they've been around. Oh, look, yeah. look at Remington, Winchester, right? All the big names, Smith & Wesson. Look how long they've been around. you got to think that everything you make, you're competing with every single thing that you've ever made. 
right? So if that product you put out is not as good as the one you made 20 years ago, eventually people are not going to buy the new product and they're only going to buy the 20-year-old one. That they I know, know where you're good. going with this. So that's the thing. You look at like Freedom Group buying um, Marlin and screwing the pooch. And like, and now people go, oh, well, if it's not a JM Barrel Marlin from you know the early 80s, don't bother because it's a crap gun. Well, I've seen some Freedom Group Marlins that are good, right? I've seen some that are turds that have machining marks and burrs and and like sharp mm-hmm. marks in the uh, in the cartridge chute when you load the rounds in there and there's sharp edge and cut the crap out of your finger like little tiny details that years ago a gun like that would have never left the facility but because either because the employees don't care or because they're just not adhering to the same standards of practice on assembly or final finishing no matter what the 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 circumstance may be it exists and then people get the stigma in their mind. They're like, well, I'm going to buy a Marlin 336 from 1942 because I know it's going to be made like a Swiss watch. And there is a difference. Like when you rack an old Marlin, it's like, wow, it just it's like butter. And you compare it to the new ones and it's just not as good. Another good example is like in the 80s, you know, Fender was having a really hard time as a company, a guitar company. They were having a really hard time um, producing good American strats. And over in Fender Japan, which I don't even know, I guess it was a such thing as a, a Fender Japan. But in in, J- in Japan, they were putting out, you know, really great guitars um, that were built to the same specs of the original 50s and 60s models. And they were putting out some really good guitars to the effect that, you know, they had to really step up their game to compete with the quality of stuff that the Japanese were putting out for less money. So see, again, as a company, you're competing with everything that you've ever made, right? So imagine if you're Fender and you've been in business since, what, the early 40s, uh, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Leo's producing stuff in the late 40s or whatever. But when you look at a company that's been around that long, you got to think you've put out a lot of amps. you put out a lot of guitars. you put out a lot of different models. So every product you sell is brand new. It's got to meet the player's expectation all the way back to the first thing you ever made, you know, and it's just weird to think about that paradigm. It's like, as a company, how do you maximize profits, right? You know, Fender has to cut corners somewhere because yeah, obviously yeah. you got to make money and, and the cost to manufacture is not getting any cheaper. And it's not like, I mean, the prices go up a bit, but it's not so much that it's some wild amount, right? I didn't want to draw like too much of that conclusion because I know a lot of the people uh, that are here are probably gun people, and I want to try to stay on the on the, the gun paradigm. But just know that it's not unique just to the gun industry or the clothing industry or the car industry. No matter what industry someone is involved in, where they're producing some commodity or good or providing a service, there's always room uh, for the quality level to shift in either direction. In some cases, the quality level increases, right? Uh, like the, when Fender Mexico started making Mexican strats, uh, and I believe those are coming out like maybe in the uh, early 90s, I want to say. Um, some of the early ones were not quite all that great. And then as time went on, like, you know, it's generally accepted that like the early 2000s to about 2005 is like a good magic year for the Mexican strats and tellies. They were like really good guitars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just because a product gets, um, you know, moved overseas, for instance, or like in this case, Fender Mexico was making, you know, their famous guitars for a much lesser price point. 
mainly because of the labor costs. That's it, right there. And that's there. really all it is. Like, it's still, you know, a good body, a good neck. You know, maybe you could upgrade the electronics a little bit in the instrument, but for the most part, it's it's a really good quality uh, instrument. And the only reason that it costs less is because they've you're cutting corners on the on the on the uh, labor. Okay? Yeah, that plays a huge role in, and that's in why it. you end up seeing famous uh, things getting made overseas in like Japan or well, well, Japan produces really good stuff. Primarily China, you know, you can buy a Chinese Fender Strat. Or whatever, but it's it's going to be a cheap guitar like a Squire. Yeah. It's going to have crummy electronics. It's going to be the race to the bottom, right? It's not going to be the same quality as something made in California here in America with hand wound pickups and all. But that paradigm goes all over the industry, whether it's musical instruments, any commodity you can think of suffers from this basic paradigm uh, when it comes to quality versus price versus. You know, how do you maximize profits without lowering the quality of the product? It's always a uh, thing to consider. Oh, well, a lot of it comes down to output. So with these larger companies that are operating overseas um, and even here in the U.S., um, the output metrics that they put. So, for example, I'm going to use an example. Um, so I thought you were going to do this. I thought you were leading the Python. So the the original Pythons are absolutely amazing. And I mean, the you want to talk about an investment piece. If you were lucky enough to have a couple of those and you kept them in your collection, you're sitting on a pretty penny right now. And then they reintroduced the Python and everybody got kind of worried. They're like, oh man, all these Pythons that I have that are amazing. And they're reintroducing the Python. Those things are garbage, man. And it's just the way it is. But that's because the output metrics that a lot of these corporations and companies use are tied directly to the compensation of the person working the working that machinery or QCing it or getting it out the door. And that's with any, not just firearms, but any industry that is has a commodity, they are saying, hey, in order to meet a certain timeline, you have to get X amount of whatever it is completed and out. And this has a direct correlation to your compensation. So it's incentivized to the person assembling said item to get as many as they can out the door, regardless of if it's of a high quality or not, because there's no way unless you're you're able to trace it back uh, like POF. uh, So you're able to trace it back to that individual person uh, putting out, which I think was really smart of them to do because they're able to do that. But larger companies, they can't do that. That person's good. He's like, hey, I got my 15 out for the day. I hit my quota and I'm on track to hit my my KPIs for the month and I'm going to get my my bonus. Um, and that's where you start running into it is they're, they're tying the compensation directly to the, the output of, of that person. I think the general perception that a lot of people have when it comes to manufacturing, especially in the firearms realm, is that they think, okay, well, the more a company produces, well, then obviously the lower the quality of the product must be, right? Uh, you look at how many um, revolvers Smith & Wesson puts out, right? Mm-hmm. How often do you hear of a Smith & Wesson product being a lemon or having an issue? Not often, right? And if it is an issue, they're going to correct it, no questions asked, right? And that's just how they do. They're really good with that. You look at Colt reissuing the Python. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand why they did it. And I, sh- I have shot the new Pythons. I haven't had one in to do a video on, but I did shoot a friend that had one. And it's a nice gun. I mean, the one that I shot was pretty well-fitted. It, it felt great. Did it have that same exact feel and the same exact smoothness of the hammer and trigger and, and just the general feel of the gun? Was it as good as an original one? 
Probably not, right? But you look at like the way that companies respond to certain market trends and you have to wonder like what they're thinking, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the way that, you know, some of the, the guns that Colt has reissued, right? Think about some of the Colts that people would really love to see, right? That have been around from back in the day. And then look at what they've reissued, like what the 1903 pocket gun, mm-hmm. like, you know, what a $1,400 or $1,500 380, like who wants that? I mean, it, and especially when, all right, remember what I said about everything that you make has to compete with whatever you've already made, right? If I can go on an auction site or go to a gun auction and buy an original Colt that probably costs less than the new one mm-hmm. and probably is made way better than the newer one, why would I buy the new one, right? That's so true. unless the price is lower, okay, they're they're cheaper, Okay, I can understand a, a, a lower barrier of entry for the same perceived gun. You look at what Brownells is doing with the retros. Well, the cool thing about the retros that Brownells is offering is that you're getting the opportunity to own a gun that probably nobody would ever be able to buy anyway, right? You start buying early AR-10s that are like legit early early stoner guns yep. that are made by Eugene Stoner, or like real early prototypes. Not only are they going to be machine guns, which are crazy impossible to get for average people, especially a collectible one like that. But there's even fewer of the semi-autos out there. They're just really uncommon guns. And it's not the kind of gun that your average person's going to have the opportunity to have access to. But with a retro, you get to scratch the itch of having the cool, old-school, genuine article, but with not having to break the bank on the price. So race to the bottom, well... Here's the thing. You're not in the purveyance or business of trying to, you know, buy and sell and trade collectible, um, you know, Armalite and Colt and early stoner stuff. You got or like, deep pockets for that, man. Yeah. But, <laughs> but okay, if you'd never be able to afford it, at what price point does it even matter what they sell it for? Because, I mean, yeah, the BRN10 is not a cheap uh, big bore autoloader. Um, and it's a very specific type of thing that will appeal to a specific group of people. But you look at what they're doing with the AR-180s. Yeah. Now you've got the folding um, stock or brace mechanism. That adds some flexibility. You can do it in 300 blackout and have a really cool retro, unique type of pistol, but that also has a very modern uh, purpose it can serve for hunting or personal defense or whatever you know needs you might have. So, you know... That's a situation where it's not a race to the bottom. It's providing a commodity that the consumers desperately want and doing it in a way that puts it as affordable as you possibly can get it without having to go buy the original article. So, see, that's the difference in the paradigm there between not to say Colt doesn't make good guns. They do. But what Brownells and Colt is doing, you look at those two different directions and you can see the the methodology, like the different way of thinking there right. is uh, completely different. Yeah. So, I mean, you could say that's similar to what people do when they buy the vintage cars. Uh, they'll take the, they'll buy a vintage, you know, rotted out shell. They know they're not going to try to restore it to the original condition, but their plan is to fix it up and put modern stuff in there. So they'll drop a modern Hemi in there. They'll drop them something modern with the upgrade, the disc break or the, uh, the brakes, two disc brakes. And that's what they want. They want that vintage look, but with modern amenities in it. And that's really what Brownells did. They took that uh, vintage operating system, because it's a different operating system, and they 
used modern day materials, modern day processes, and they're still able to keep it very affordable. I mean, and and even with that being the case, you can buy uppers and lowers are complete. So I mean, they mm-hmm. you can drop it right onto your regular AR lower, and it'll well the the BRN one eighty you can um, you just drop it right on there, you're good to go, man. And then they sell the the lowers as well if you want a complete system. What I saw. What kind of kicked all of this off was really not so much the firearms because firearms are mainly manufactured already here in the U.S. So uh, the U.S. style, like black rifles and stuff like that, I saw it pick up really on gear. So you start to see a lot of companies that kind of spearheaded USA made products and their their price point was higher, but it was acceptable because it was USA made. I know where this is going. And then they kind of slipped in and backdoored overseas uh, manufacturing, but they didn't lower their price. So one, you have to ask yourself, would it be okay for them to be transparent and say, hey, we are receiving a high volume of orders. We're going to send it to wherever they're going to send it overseas to have it uh, manufactured, but we're going to lower the price point to commiserate that that we're leaving uh, mm-hmm. and having it shipped o- or manufactured overseas. I think that I would be okay with that as long as you're transparent and I have the choice as a consumer to say, hey, I'm okay with that. But when you don't do that and you keep your price point at the same and you obviously lowered your uh, cost of goods and manufacturing by going overseas, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where you kind of saw the race to the bottom because you saw a lot of big brands do that and then the smaller brands, the boutique brands that kind of uh, specialized in a super high quality product get kind of stuck in a position where their pro- their product is twice as expensive, but the same exact consumer is confused on why one why company A can do it in America and company B can't when they're really not doing it in America. They're kind of fooling everybody. Well, I think that there's a common misconception about goods being produced in China and it being poor quality just because it's produced. That's true. You know, China will make what you tell them to make. So, you know, and that this can go down an entire rabbit hole of different principles and ideas about, you know, consumer goods that we all commonly use on a regular basis. And they're all produced in China. I mean, this this phone, I can drop this phone off the roof, run over it with the tractor I mean, this is a rugged phone, right? Uh, the the iPhone, the Apple, it's Chinese. And so people automatically just have a negative stigma about something being produced in China and it automatically being bad quality. So what I think of is someone like Vertex, you know, Vertex puts out great gear and a lot of it's Chinese produced, obviously, but it's good quality. So they're going to make what you tell them to make. Obviously, it's still a good quality item. It's just made to their exacting tolerances and their exacting materials and design elements. Like it's all engineered and, and figured out by them. And yeah, um, it's a great quality product and it still sells for, you know, Vertex is a, a good premium brand and it's Chinese and they do great, you know. And the same thing can be said for looking at um, Tactical Tailor, right? American made gear, really, really good stuff. Um, another uh, brand that comes into mind is Hill People Gear. Uh, they're all made right here in the U.S., really good quality. They don't have distributors, you know what I mean? So when you buy something from Hill People, you go to hillpeople.com, you buy it. There, there's no dealer that's going to stock it. And they know, okay, their prices on some stuff is pretty pretty reasonable. 
other stuff, like some of the larger packs that uh, that Hill people make, uh, they are pricey. But you get a great quality product made in the U.S. with American hands. I mean, so, you know, you got to be willing to pay that extra bit of money. And they're not concerned about the race to the bottom. They're not trying to produce a subpar or sub-tier type of product. Like, Hill People produces really good, rugged, you know, duty-ready or, or trail-ready gear uh, for the outdoorsy type of person. That's what they do. It's not tactical, not tactical. It's just meant to be good, <laughs> rugged true. gear that's designed to get out there and get the job done. And, and, and yeah, it's not cheap. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Well, I always ask I, anybody that I have this conversation with um, and in the industry that I'm in and you're in, it comes up quite a bit because manufacturing costs are a major part of uh, margins. So anytime you're talking about profit margins, that has to cost of goods, cost of manufacturing comes up. Um, and the conversation I always have with them is that, okay, so you think everything that comes out of China is cheap or bad quality. And you think, and you associate everything that comes out of Germany and Switzerland as super high quality. I always ask them, do you think that everything that comes out of Germany is great? Great. Uh, so if you if you go to Germany and you ask a local there, do you is there anything here that's a cheap product? They're gonna say, no, there isn't any. Nothing that is produced in Germany is cheap. Everything is of like super grade A A plus plus quality. No, every country's manufacturing can produce exactly what you tell them to make. So if you're in if you have a German manufacturer and you say, Hey, I want it at the bottom dollar, most least expensive uh price point, they'll make it. Same thing in China. You go to China. They're capable of producing high quality gear if that's what you if that's the specs you give them to do. I will tell you from experience, um, there they will get try to get by on you, uh, and that's what and not just Chinese but any manufacturing. It's it's the nature because they want to make more money too. Um, in the industry, the way to get around that is that in China in the manufacturer, there's a whole. There's a whole business that revolves around having American buyers there all the time and their sole and they work for the companies that are having stuff manufactured. Their sole job is to ex, uh, examine and ensure the quality of these materials before they even leave on the container. Because once that container leaves the country and it's landed in the US, you're not you can't send it back. It's you can't just say no, I'm not going to I can't take it. That container is going to sit there until somebody pays for it and somebody pays the port fees. Um, and usually it's you. So to, uh, to get around that, companies that are ordering by the container, they'll have somebody that's employed that their sole job is to live in Shenzhen or Hong Kong or Shanghai. And they literally go through every product while it's being loaded onto the container to make sure that it meets the standards and uh, meets the the specifications and then that person will let the people in the u.s know everything is good they'll give them the check and that thing leaves on the container here to the u.s does every company do that no but a lot of the major companies i would imagine someone that's purchasing something like vertex probably 
like we'll either have someone hired in that country or have one on staff that does that. Um, Especially if it's a new SKU. Yeah. Something you never offered before. They've never made it. Of course, they're going to be pretty stringent on that first batch to make sure that it's made to their specs and especially sizing too. You see so many sizing variations when you're talking about like clothing and stuff. (laughs) That's the worst. What they say is XL. (laughs) It's not (laughs) XL. (laughs) might be completely different, you know. Yeah. So when you start seeing on like, you know, all these websites selling, you know, different jackets and they say, hey, order two sizes up, it's because the Asian size is typically way off there's no standard there but you know it is it's its own uh it's its own profession there's people over there and again they'll produce what you tell them to but as a company you have to hold them accountable because they will try to get over on you yep i think that a lot of this comes down to just being a smart consumer and understanding that not all that glitters is gold uh but however Uh, Just because a product is a lower cost, don't always assume that that automatically means lower quality. I mean, ultimately, you're shopping with your eyes and your ears and your hands. You know, you're going to feel the product, look at it, assess the quality. You're going to read reviews. You know, you're going to watch videos and content and gather information. I mean, that is one of the reasons that we put videos out the way that we do over on Iraq Veteran. Now, some of you are listening in on the podcast. Some of you are watching here on YouTube. But that's why we put out videos like we do, because we want uh, people watching to get an idea of what's out there and just to get our perspective a little bit. And the idea is, you know, you watch our video, maybe you go watch Such or Hickok or Tim or Mr. Guns and Gear or one of the other channels. And maybe you end up watching two or three videos about a certain product from two or three different uh, people. And then you use all of that information from all three and you kind of go, okay. I think I've developed an opinion based on what these guys are saying about this particular product. So don't ever take my view as gospel, just like you wouldn't take Hickok or Tim or or Mr. Guns and Gear strictly only on on their... Now, I do. If I watch a video from Tim or Mr. Guns and Gear or any of the guys I said, I I can know that my experience is going to be pretty similar to what they went through. Now, I may not be able to shoot as good as Hickok, but I know that what the performance expectations of a given firearm uh, can be based on what these guys are doing. So don't don't take one person's opinion. Go ahead and assess, you know, be a smart consumer. And that's what we've always tried to promote with our channel. Right. You know, understand what real value is. Right. Put your money somewhere uh, based on, you know, what you're getting. Right. If a gun has a bunch of teething issues or problems or, or whatever, don't buy it. You know, we've never told somebody, hey, go buy this. Maybe a man can or a T-shirt or something, but we've never told somebody, all right, we endorse this product or, hey, go buy this, right? If our videos influence someone to uh, change a purchase habit or decision or influence them to purchase a good, that's cool. Uh, We hope you're happy, but we've never uh, gone out of our way to say, oh, you should go buy this. Sometimes we, you know, we'll get legitimately, like, awesomely inspired by a product and people will see that like, mm-hmm. wow, you know, you could tell Eric or Chad's really digging this or something, but it's not like we've, we've ever gone out of our way to say, unless it's just something we really, really love. We've never told anybody, Hey, this is what you should think. We don't tell people what to think. We let people um, just use the content as a, a test bed for them to kind of go, okay, maybe this is what I can expect um, out of whatever the product might be. Yeah. I mean, a product really has to just be absolutely amazing 
for I was I would imagine anybody in this industry to just advocate for immediately. I yeah. think it, it, what you said is exactly what the common person is doing. They're looking for confirmation bias. They're they're saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, I want this product, X product." And they pop up and they see you, they see uh Tim, they see Mr. Guns and Gear, and everybody might have a different experience and that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for yeah. oh man, um I'm not going to put my gun through a gauntlet test. But it's good to know that yeah. it, it passes the gauntlet test. I'm not going to put my gun through a meltdown. Yeah, I'm not going to burn maybe it down. Eric will. Yeah. Right. So then it becomes okay if you've consumed four or five pieces of content from your favorite menu or your favorite uh, content creators, and you go, well, all five of them had a pretty similar experience, right? Okay, Hickok can probably shoot a little bit better at longer range than I can with a handgun. Okay, that's that's mm-hmm. granted. I'll, I'll take that. Right. He's he's a great pistol shot. That is probably not indicative of what an average person can do with a handgun. So, like, when you watch Hickok, you you know what the gun can do. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, what it's really capable of at longer range, especially. And then, you know, the dude's a really good shot, and he's he's real easy to get along with. And Greg's a great dude, dude you know? So, but it's it's very different. Like, everybody has a different style of shooting. Some people stand a little different. Some people move around and, and go up under barriers or, you know, and, like, Tim doing all of the mud testing and the gauntlet testing. I mean, that's all great. Like the guys at InRange doing all of the uh, crazy mud tests with different Mm -hmm. guns. So there's so much different information out there that the consumer can have at their fingertips from so many different people that don't even like consider themselves experts, right? That's the weird thing about it. We're all just consumers at the end of the day. We're all just showing what we see and showing you, you see what we see, most of us, okay? And... At the end of the day, we're all just average dudes with cameras, and I think that there's a beauty in that, and it it sort of makes a lot of these manufacturers very beholden to the consumer, ultimately, because you know if there's some type of weird issue, one of us is going to figure it out, we're going to report it, and they're going to have to fix it because they have no choice but to acknowledge the issue. It's and that's true. the beauty of social media and the beauty of, of all these gun channels, specifically with the firearms realm, is that... You know, the manufacturers know that if they put out a bad product that they're going to get called out on it or that one of us is going to go to bat and say, hey, here's what's happening. Let's correct this issue and then just report the details, right? A new product comes out, you're going to have a little mistake or issue. You look at all the teething issues with the 365. Mm -hmm. You look at the teething issues that are still occurring with the M17 and the M18 from Zig. So, there you go. There's an example of, I mean, a SIG is usually, a, uh, that brand is associated with a very high quality pistol. Yeah, that is not for the poor. When you think SIG, you think expensive. Yep. That's just what goes through your head. Just like if somebody said H&K, you're not going to think affordable H&K. You're going to think, hey, a great gun, but also costs a lot of money. Yep. So the same type of thing, even an upper tier brand can occasionally put out a lemon product. And it's just the 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 crux of manufacturing is that anything that can be manufactured can be manufactured incorrectly or can have some design element that they weren't thinking about until the guns get out there and get into different people's hands and start having thousands of rounds put through them. Then they can go, okay, cool. We discovered this little tiny widget. Let's make a little rolling change and move on with life. So a little bit interesting paradigm to think about. Yeah. And it also allows you to see you know, experiences when you're trying to find that confirmation bias of like what 
when you do see something like, say, a weapon malfunction, mm-hmm. it gives you the opportunity to say, well, nobody would ever do that. I like For an example, I saw one uh, video. It was like, hey, if you, if you insert the magazine at this angle with this much pressure, then you know, it won't work. And I'm like, well, who would do that? Who would, even even like a new gun owner would know that you're not going to do that at this angle with the sun at this angle in the sky mm-hmm. and the wind blowing in this direction. Um, but it really does allow you to see the the level that you have to go to to induce a malfunction, yeah. and that you can take it with a grain of salt because sometimes people will find a a, way, a reason to gripe about anything, especially with the higher end. I'm glad you mentioned that with the higher end pieces like. H and K, uh, SIG. Those are the ones that get thrown under the bus the most when they do have a failure. So if you do produce a high quality upper tier product, you should be prepared for the criticism that's going to come your way if there's some sort of failure. That's right. uh, For sure. So um, I think we covered the subject pretty well. Uh, this should point you all in the right direction. And, uh, and we kind of stayed mostly on firearms in this. but Yeah, tactical gear and firearms and yeah, stuff like but that. But this can apply to a ton of different consumer goods. It doesn't matter anything you've ever bought that with a price tag on it, no matter what. Cookware, uh, furniture, doesn't matter. Anything you've ever bought. Electronics mm-hmm. all follows the same basic principles of, you know, there's certain brands that's kind of a race to the bottom and they're making it up in quantities. And just know that, you know, that quality of product is going to be a certain tier. And it's not a bad tier. It's just an approachable tier. And it doesn't mean that there aren't better things out there. But it also doesn't mean that just because that upper tier, more expensive items out there, that it's always going to be 110% without question uh, free of any potential lemons or failures. That's just the nature of manufacturing, right? I mean, companies, uh, car companies have recalls all the time on various components, you got to think, um, a lot of components that get put into vehicles are subcontracted parts. Like, they don't make the actual electronic switches or the, you know, sensor or this type of thing, right? They produce certain things and other things they sub out. Like uh, Ford, for instance, or Chevy, you know, they might sub out the LCD screens from a certain manufacturer uh, to put in there. So, if you're going down the road and your screen shorts out, it doesn't mean that Fords suck just because the screen failed. It means the manufacturer that made the screen made uh, had a a weak point that failed in their product. So there's lots of that that goes on. There's lots of OEM level things where one company might make lots of small components for other subsidiary companies that are buying mm-hmm. from them. I'll tell you what I'm starting to see now um as as a and this is an active race to the bottom that I'm witnessing in real time is body armor. I am seeing a massive, and this is, I mean, this is just something that I'm doing while I'm browsing through all these. You start to see all these companies pop up and every week it's $10 less, $10. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, well, shoot, how how low can you go for level four plates? And do one, do I trust level four plates that are only like 80 bucks? You know, one, they can't be made in the U.S., um, Which, as we've established, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not. uh, However, you start. Remember, I said that companies are starting to be a little bit more misleading. So, you know, when you see NIJ tested and then tested to NIJ standards, two different things. So, you start to see those two those two phrases being intermingled, and it's a very dangerous thing to do, especially with life life saving devices. Um, And when you start to see some of the the back uh, back face deformation on some of these level four or even level three plates like that's not 
normal. I'm not naming names and I'm not going down that rabbit hole, but I'm, I mean, you'll see videos and evidence and you're like, that is a massive, it looks like a softball coming through the back of a plate. And when you're like, oh, it didn't go through. I'm like, yeah, but it stopped your heart because of the trauma that it hit your sternum with. Yeah. So this is a dangerous game to play. There are certainly a lot of principles that have to be followed pretty um, strictly when it comes to testing body armor, especially Mm -hmm. Like, you know, us guys on YouTube here that, you know, we're testing armor and someone could be making a decision, a life, potentially a life or death decision That's right. based on the outcome of the test that I performed. That's why it's very important to me that we follow really strict guidelines and we're doing a really good job of doing, I mean, not to toot our own horn, but we really do try to be very, very, very critical um, of armor tests because we know that that's not something to be taken lightly, right? Armor is one of the most um, passive ways that you can protect yourself. You don't have to own a gun to own body armor, right? So if someone goes, well, I want to be protected from a gun, but I don't want to own a gun. Someone buys that armor, and let's just say there's a failure of some sort. That ultimately, you know, goes back to the marketing and and everything that goes into a certain armor. You know, you don't want to dishonestly represent the capabilities of an armor system. You want to make sure people know exactly what they're getting, exactly what threats it'll stop. And uh, that's something we take very seriously. Also, ammo tests. We love testing Yeah, that's a big one, yeah. And, And to me, it's like an ammo choice might be a deal breaker for some people. Like, you know, it's important what carry load you wind up running up with. So we take ammo tests very seriously. Uh, we take armor tests very seriously. Um, that's something we don't play around with. And we have a little fun and a little humor. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we, we want to be all business when it comes to testing stuff that people could potentially um, trust their lives to. That's very, very important to me, both personally, because I feel like I have a very, um, very directly vested interest in the safety of my viewers and in the information that I'm putting out. But also, it's just a personal principle that I feel needs to be in place for anybody that's going to do that type of testing uh, on something. You owe it to yourself from a moral and principle standpoint to represent on- as honestly as you can every single thing you hit get put in front of you. I agree. I was going to say that. I mean, at some point, you know, y- there is a moral and ethical obligation to ensure the safety of, 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 you know, not just your friends and your family, but, you know, anybody that's consuming this content. Um, but that's just my experience with what I'm seeing live. Cause I don't know, I don't know what happened, but this just a ton of, of stuff coming onto the market now. Yeah. So. Well, I think that we, uh, we definitely got down into the, uh, into the weeds with this particular uh, subject. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you're watching on YouTube, thank you very much for tuning in. Also, all of our podcast listeners, thank you so much. Uh, Make sure that you uh, tune in and give us a great rating over on the podcast end. Uh, We're on all different types of platforms. And the podcast is growing. Um, It's doing quite well, and we're really appreciative um, of the support. So thank you very much. Many more podcasts on the way. Make sure you tune in to LLP each week. Um, We're going to try to film... Uh, video of every single podcast as we possibly can. Uh, So you'll probably see these popping over on YouTube and we hope you'll enjoy them. I don't know what day they're dropping as of right now, but we're going to try to drop a fresh LLP episode every week on the YouTube channel as well. We may have to rearrange the days to make it, to make it work, but we will drop one a week for sure. Right now that's every Friday, but that that's probably going to change. It may end up being Saturday. I'm not sure yet. 
Um, but the podcasts drop every Friday for sure. So if you want to get the podcast, even if the YouTube video doesn't go up until Saturday, you can always tune into the podcast, uh, sometimes even as early as Thursday, depending on when it processes. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that. Have a great day. We really, really appreciate all of you. Have a great week, a great day, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.